Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, recap of last week's election. Christie goes up, McCall goes up, Cuccinelli goes down. We'll analyze that. Also, Obamacare. This thing just does not go away. It keeps getting worse for the president. We're going to be talking with special guests. D.C. City Councilman David Grosso will be joining us live in studio at the 5 o'clock hour. And nuclear talks fall apart in Geneva. This is Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former, he is a former eight-term, eight-term member of Congress representing the What's second... What's so difficult about that? I don't know. What, I don't know. For some reason... Let me, hey, hey, let me start over again. Joining me to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing the second congressional district of Washington State. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Al. Thank you Thanks for doing that twice. No, I shut up. <laughs> <laughs> to my 11 o'clock, he is the uh, former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He's the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. I'm glad to be here. Good to have you. To my one o'clock, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, a longtime Washington insider, Carl Tuvin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Jeff. <coughs> Hello, Justin. Good to slide in in time. Yeah, just in time. And to my right, as he is always, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who has, rep- who has worked for, at last count, four presidents, former Senate staffer and longtime Washington insider, and a very distinguished and handsome fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable uh, Alan Moore. Hi, Alan. Hello, Justin. It's winter's arrived. It's cold outside, but smoking hot in here. It is smoking hot in here. Wow. Where, where do we start? First of all, I want to announce at 5 o'clock today, we've got special guest Councilman David Grasso will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour to talk about politics here in your capital city, Washington, D.C. And also, we've got so much to cover today. We're going to start off by covering what we covered last week with our great guest last week, Frank Berenkoff, former GOP, uh, former RNC chairman. But there was so much news coming out of last week's race. The big news, I think, coming out of last week's election night was the Virginia gubernatorial election, where we, all of us around the table, including Frank Berenkoff, figured this was going to be what many would consider a kind of a blowout, at least eight points, nine points, even double digits in some instances, some polls had it. But the reality came in at the end of the night, uh, Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic, uh, what do you would call a carpetbagger, opportunist, the, uh, nice what is word. that? Candidate. Candidate's a nice word. Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic uh, candidate, ended up beating Republican Attorney General from Virginia, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, by only two points. 
that was stunning, stunning. Bob Hines, let's start off with you. Did you even imagine it would be that close? I uh, let's say put it this put it this way: three weeks between two and three weeks out, uh, Mr. McAuliffe had a uh, ten to eleven point lead, something like that. Uh, Mr. Cuccinelli finally figured something out, and that was that he should stop talking about uh, all his uh, real conservative ideas and what wonderful things they were, and he started talking about how bad the Obamacare was, and with the with, with the national discussion of the the website is falling apart and they can't get people you know organized and having accounts on for Obamacare. I mean, it was it was making points with the public, and I think, quite frankly, that uh, that the gentleman from uh, uh, Fairfax, Mr. Cuccinelli, uh, picked up at least five or six points of people who thought, just you know, this guy is finally talking about something I'm, I'm interested in. Well, Carl Tubin, your thoughts. First of all, I'm not sure whether I said it. I'm not sure whether I said it last week or not. But I was telling people two to three points, and I hit it on the head. And the other thing is, is that <clears throat> that Terry McAuliffe won with all the segments of the Obama victory in two years ago. Well, actually, actually, Carl, you know, there was a surprising fact that came out in the Virginia pilot last week after the election that there was a surprising number. Terry McAuliffe actually did not win a key demographic. That was the uh, Caucasian 18 to 35 vote in Virginia. That's a key demographic that normally would have gone to Obama. Cuccinelli picked that up. Yeah. How do you how do you how do you explain that? It's hard. It's hard to it's hard to explain. But he picked up he picked up African Americans. He picked up all all the other constituencies that Obama had. But, but Alan Moore, I mean, that's a key, that's a key constituency, a youth movement going for a, a, a very staunch conservative in Ken Cuccinelli. Uh, that, was, that was probably, the apart from the final margin, that was probably the biggest surprise that came out of it. Um, Cuccinelli damaged himself over a lifetime of politics. That was when he was very much a social conservative, uh, uh, associating himself with some issues that are pretty extreme and outside the mainstream even of a conservative state like Virginia. Virginia in some ways is two states. There's the northern part of the state which is very Washington DC, uh, sophisticated, wealthy, highly educated, democratic, and then the bulk of the state which is which is quite conservative. Um, and uh, Cuccinelli tried to tried to move away from his record early on in his campaign, but it, it, a the record was clear, and b McAuliffe had had four or five times as much money uh, as Cuccinelli did, so he could hammer away as we in, 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 who live in this area saw nightly on the news as. He continued over and over and over again to, to hammer away, particularly on on issues of of maternal health, abortion, birth control, and there was no way that Cuccinelli could really respond. A, because he gave the ammunition in the first place with a record, and B, he didn't he didn't have the money. What 
what what made the biggest difference for McAuliffe was his overwhelming support among women. Um, Cuccinelli actually won among among uh, white men as as uh, Romney did uh, uh, last year. And and by the way, you can join the conversation today. Call toll free eight seven seven. Six six two three seven one three. Again, that number is eight seven seven six six two three seven one three. The switchboard is open. Uh, Congressman Al, your comments. Well, the question was: uh, Were we surprised by how close it was, having given the projections? Uh, <clears throat> I think the answer is yes, we were. But I think any time you have a race in which both candidates raise negatives real big negatives with uh, both parties. You, you've got an electorate that's going to vote no. I mean, they're going to vote against somebody rather than for somebody. <clears throat> and I think Cuccinelli was able to bring, at the end, raise the negatives that, uh, of, of, the other, of the other candidate significantly, because I don't think there was a lot of loyalty probably to either candidate except among the hardcore party people. So in that sense, I don't think it was so surprising. Really? Bob Hines. <clears throat> well, the interesting thing we mentioned earlier, I think, Alan, or you mentioned it, Justin, about the, the young males not so much voting for the, pre the president. Let me just guesstimate something. I, I'm not sure it makes any sense at all, but apparently... There has been very little uh, of the invincibles, as they call themselves, the the younger uh, the younger generation, with respect to you know going into the Obamacare program. Uh, very few of them are going on the website and trying to get accounts. I I have no reason to believe that any that, that necessarily these these uh, these younger uh, this younger generation was suddenly saying, uh, you know, we're, we don't need the insurance, we're not going to get it, and we're going to make a statement about it. I can understand them saying, no, I don't need the insurance, I'm not going to get it. I don't know that they would have thought about making a statement. Yeah, but interesting. I just don't know. Uh, all right, hold on. Fact check by Helen <laughs> Moore. Yeah, before we get too carried away down this particular road, the, the data I saw said that, that Cuccinelli won in the 18 to 25 correct. I'm age sorry. group. That is correct. And that that's, is correct. that's college and just out of college, and it's kids who still qualify for being insured on their parents' policies. They're not even, if, and, and many, many are. Um, and, and so we, uh, we better, we, we got to be careful because in the 25 to 35, where people are first exposed, required to go out there, they they fell for for for, for McCall. McCall. We got a caller on the line. Caller in the two hundred two area code. You're on with backroom politics. What's your question? Uh, yeah, I just want to see with regard to McAuliffe and and Cuccinelli. I mean, did we even get a good candidate, or did we really just get the lesser of two evils? Well, that's that's a good question. That's something I brought up last week. Is this is a matter of two candidates who sucks less? <clears throat> Apparently. McAuliffe sucks less. I mean, would you agree well, with that, Alan? Well, and, and, and Al just was making yeah. that point, that, that what was happening is there weren't that many people on, on either side who were really enthusiastic about their candidate. Cuccinelli obviously had a, has a following. Uh, McAuliffe has uh, had a following 
but let's say it's 20% of the voters for both of them. That leaves the great bulk that's out there, and a lot of Republicans were very distressed at Cuccinelli and said, he does not stand for what I stand for. What am I going to do? I don't like McAuliffe, so Sarvis, the libertarian, who nobody had ever heard of, who had almost no money, he picked up 7%, and then there were others who just decided to stay at home, and others who decided they would write in a name. Hold on, Congressman Al, go ahead. Let's face it, the new governor of Virginia would have been the former lieutenant governor governor of Virginia had Cuccinelli not screwed around with the rules of the game in the middle of it and and, and gone for uh, uh, a a state convention endorsement. Uh, The the fact is neither of these guys were liked. The the, the former lieutenant governor, (coughs) I think, would have absolutely washed Cuccinelli away. I'm saying this is a Democrat. I think he would have washed him away, and uh, we wouldn't have this. Would he have beaten McAuliffe, do you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, 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 that's what I'm saying. It's McAuliffe he would have washed away. Alan Moore. You know, there, there's going to be a lingering, ongoing debate about uh, the, the, the caucus or convention versus the primary. Um, I don't know who would have won a primary. We talked about this a little bit last week with, with Frank Ferenkopf. Um it would have been an interesting primary. The, 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 a lot of the true believers would have had to turn out in mass to to nominate Cuccinelli. That might have worked. We will never know. I mean, right. we we complain about some of the U.S. Senate seats that we lost because of conventions, but not always because of conventions. Sometimes it was because of a primary where the person we yeah. might have favored. Um, Dick Luger lost in a primary in Indiana to a guy who then self-destructed after he succeeded in a primary. Mike Castle um, in Delaware. And Mike Castle lost in a primary. It wasn't, it wasn't that they messed with the rules. So you never know who will win. But as we said before, if you go through a primary, it's a bigger, broader uh, process. You're more exposed and you learn a lot more how to be a good candidate. Bob Hines. What Alan just said is exactly right. I mean, if the, the, the my point is just that. A primary gives you a broader base of electorate. And any time you do it, you have a, a, uh, a convention. If, you're, if it's a convention of liberal Democrats, you're going to get the most liberal out of that situation. If you do it as a Republican, you're going to get the most conservative out of that situation, most likely, with the Tea Party. So what it, what it means is, you're much better off as a national party if you're wa- looking for a broader electorate to choose your candidate because you get, you, you're more, you get a more balanced choice that way and it, you usually get a better candidate. But let me ask you this question because one of the comments coming out of Richmond and a lot of GOP leaders is there's animosity towards the RNC that they pulled out money from Cuccinelli too early that if he had had the money injection in the last three weeks, Cuccinelli would be the governor. Sour grapes. grapes. Well, let me ask, ask, that's coming from a Democrat, Congressman Al. Let me ask a Republican who votes in Virginia, both Alan and Bob. Bob, what do you think? Well, given the fact that Cuccinelli was moving up, it may well be that that is a possibility. But the fact of the matter is, Cuccinelli started very late 
talking about Obamacare. It was only the last three weeks. And was that a campaign flaw for Cuccinelli? Certainly it was. Well, it, it, well uh, Alan Moore. He was, doing, I, I think, he was going nowhere talking about his own policies. Well, Alan Moore. Uh, yeah, he, he, he was, yeah, he, he had abandoned talking about the social issues many months earlier. He was trying to top jobs, trying to get traction, mostly going negative on McAuliffe. If you, their, their, their debates were all trying to, to, to dump on the other guy. But, but what happened, what, what really messed him up, apparently, he was ready on October 1, the rollout of Obamacare, to, to jump on Obamacare. Because it was hard to say too much about it um, until it actually began. Well, that was going to give you a month. And, oh my God, what a gift. The, uh, the disastrous website was for, uh, would have been for Cuccinelli. The problem was October 1 was the day that the government shutdown started and Cuccinelli said, I think it's a good idea and it messed up the Obamacare message. He then became... By the way, he did this in a state where a huge population... It's next door to Washington, D.C. Exactly. They're all affected by government shutdown. Huge numbers of people yeah. affected and in defense... Uh, uh, locations around the state as well as right up here in northern in northern Virginia was a disastrous issue and the McAuliffe people jumped all over it and said he's the, he's the guy who thinks this is a good idea. Yeah. Well, oh, by the way, this is the same guy who brought Ted Cruz down to Kansas. And then he yeah. brought Cruz in yeah. near the end who was also associated with that whole issue. Some of that was beyond his control, some of it was inside his control, and that was much more damaging. I, I, that was damaging at the end. The only reason it got as close as it did at the end, in my opinion, is because the Obamacare disaster caused a bunch of people to think, wow, this really is bad, and McAuliffe is in bed with the supporters of Obamacare. Maybe the lesser of two evils is Cuccinelli, not McAuliffe. That's my view. Now, the McAuliffe people will say, as, as Carl suggested earlier, their polls had this really close all the way through. It was outside polls that showed 10, 11 points, so we don't know how close it was. And would more money have made a difference? We don't know. Al's right. Sour grapes. What would they have spent it on? More, some more ads up here saying, no, 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 we love now, women. Wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We don't know what they would. If, 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 there, there are some that are saying right now that if the RNC had put more money into, let's just say, TV advertising yep. in purple areas like Loudoun, Falk here, Prince William County, that would have made... Uh, that could have even made a 2% difference yeah. with the population. There is there. no way that would have made a 2% difference. You don't think so? No. Wow. No. It's very expensive airtime up in this area. Very expensive. And, and those counties weren't going to shift that much. No. A few more ads by that point are not going to cause people to say, oh, wow, I really want to tune in on these ads because they're coming about 20 per night. Carl Tubin. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me say this. Jerry McAuliffe didn't stop campaigning after he lost the primary uh, four years ago. And he has traveled the state of Virginia, building friends, building relationships for this race. The one thing I will say for Terry going forward is that I hope he follows the, uh, the lead of, of some of his, his people that he's supported over the years, and that he sits down and looks and picks the best people he can for the different positions in, in the state of Virginia. He's already started to reach out to Republicans. 
Well, that, that's going to be interesting. That's going to be an interesting transition. No question about it. Bob Hines. Just to pick up on a point that Carl said, uh, uh, I was down in Newport News this weekend uh, where the Gerald R. Ford, the first of the new aircraft carriers, was christened. Mr. McAuliffe was there. Didn't speak, but he was there at the ceremony, and uh, I thought that was very impressive. Yeah. But the point I wanted to make was, I would love to, has anybody here, has anybody seen any analysis of who voted for Mr. Sardis? I would be curious to know, he got about 7% of the vote, as Alan said, and uh, that 7%, I don't know where uh, where that went, where, where the, it came the, from. The one, the one analysis I've, I've heard of talking with people in Richmond has been that your traditional Ron Paulites were very big in giving him at least a majority of his votes there. But there were libertarian-based folks of the idea, Republicans basically, that said, you know what? I like his fiscal conservativeness. I like his argument on Obamacare. Stay out of my personal life. Those votes went to Sarvis, which is not unusual in a case like no. this, and particularly with the messaging coming out of Cuccinelli's camp. And considering how close the vote was to begin with, uh, it seems to me that uh, Sarvis may have been the difference. He, you know, Moore? He, he may have been. And it's, it's hard to... It's hard to get a close read, but first of all, he didn't get as big a number as people might have thought. So, and then the question is, how many people actually favored him, and how many people were, were holding their nose towards both of the mainstream candidates and said, this is the way I'm going to cast my protest vote. I don't think it's, any, it's at all clear that this all came out of Cuccinelli's hide, but probably more came out of his hide than, than McCollum. Girl, that I've heard about and read about was that more came from Cuccinelli than came from McAuliffe. Yes, yeah. yes, that, that, that would be accurate. Uh, moving on now, the other big race that we, everybody was looking, not, not a surprise, but the big news coming out of New Jersey was Christie's victory speech. Congressman Al, what do you think about Chris Christie's victory speech? Did you happen to catch it? I did not catch it. <coughs> you did not catch it? <coughs> no. He, I find, a very, very impressive guy, and I don't, I don't know what he said, but I probably could extemporize one right now, because he, <clears throat> because uh, he's he's a straight talker, and he uh, he probably uh, uh, talked about what he was going to do for the state and what he'd already done for the state, and uh, that he was going to be tough on the things that people wanted to be tough on. Carl Tubin. <coughs> You know, what I got out of it is the fact that he, uh, what he did was he talked about looking forward. And he talked about um, in a minute a presidential run and, and, and all that. And what I think he was doing. Well, and he said he wasn't going to. No, no, no. He didn't mention that. No, he didn't. But he talked a lot about, you know, forward looking. And I think what he was doing, in my mind, he was putting the, the other people in the race he was giving them kind of a warning. Don't, don't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be left out of this. And, and I, uh, Alan, you want to take this? Yeah. What, what I, what I, what I saw him saying is that that he hoped that others, particularly people in Washington, would observe the way he governed 
across party lines. And what a bunch of people read into that, it was like, gee, I can bring this to New Jersey. Uh, I could bring New Jersey to Washington. <clears throat> that, that's a, not an illegitimate interpretation, but it's also not an illegitimate uh, interpretation. That, that would be pretty bold, and that's kind of not how he is. He went on four talk shows on Sunday, um, <laughs> all four, and said, I'm not talking and thinking about 2016. I'm thinking about trying to be a good governor. And, and that's going to that's gonna be his line. It's so... So for what he would say he was communicating on the night of his election is, I hope the country pays attention. Different parties can get along. Terry McAuliffe could become the Chris Christie of Virginia because he's, he's got a Republican legislature he's got to deal with. He doesn't have any choice. That's the situation for Christie in New Jersey, and he has successfully figured out how to talk to them and find some level of common ground. Bob Hines, in, 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 in watching Chris Christie's uh, victory speech that night, which he did from my dad's hometown of Asbury Park, New Jersey, right there in the convention center, right there at the boardwalk, brilliant, brilliant speech, brilliant location. The thing I got out of it was he was very stern in his comments of saying, look, this is not presidential. I'm he, I've been elected to govern the state of New Jersey. I am going to, quote-unquote, finish this job. Is, does America take him at his word, or do Americans look at it saying, yeah, you're going to say that, you're still going to go to Washington and run for president in 2016? Did he, did he get his, his uh, message across? Well, I think he probably did get his message across. Uh, I mean, it's, it's obvious that he is going to be even if he, even if it is in his own mind, he's not going to run. The fact that he had a big victory in a blue state is going to make the pundits and everybody else talk about Chris Christie. What is Chris Christie going to do? Uh, he doesn't have to indicate he's interested in running for president. He is going to be defined as someone who wants to run or will run for president by the uh, the folks whose business it is to talk things up like that. Carl Tubin. Well, you know, I made my statement. Uh, he might not have said president. He talked about region across the aisle. And this is what we do here in New Jersey. But a lot of people, including conservative Republicans, took it as the fact that this guy is looking at this thing. I, I, I mean, I, and they criticized him. A lot of people criticized him. And even some Democrats started to jump in on him. So... I don't think anybody believes, who pays any attention to politics, that Christie has ruled out running for president in 2016. But there's a time-tested path that you take when you're three years out, which is, and you've just been elected to a job, which is to say, I'm elected to do this, I'm going to focus on this, and by the way, I'm going to continue to use the pattern that I've used for four years that help me get my 60%. This is me adding some words right. to what he said. And I suggest that everybody else, including those in Washington, pay attention because this works. Does that harm him for 2016? No. Does it feed people talking about it? Sure does. But it doesn't mean that this is all some big master scheme. He's a, he's a, pretty, he's a pretty clever guy, but it works for his current narrative of being a good governor as well as this is helping people in right. New Jersey. Con Congressman, last word. The speech that, that 
<clears throat> you guys have described because I didn't hear it, is it sounds to me as though it was made up of everything that any smart politician would say in exactly that situation. Correct. Yeah. The difference is this, and I always practiced this when I was in Congress. If, if you can get, if you can develop credibility. You can be believed sometimes even in when, when you have to tell an unlikely truth. Now, what he was telling was, frankly, a common thing for a victor to say. But he has also done and said a number of other things to build credibility so that I think it was probably much more believed by his people than the run-of-the-mill run-of-the-mill speech like right. that. Right. Uh, one last, one last race I want to talk about was the primary in Alabama's first congressional district. Uh, it was Tea Party versus Established Republican. The Establishment Republican won. Uh, close. Very close race, but, Bob, what's the takeaway from that? Well... Or is the Tea Party in trouble? Well, I'm not sure the Tea Party is in trouble. Uh, I can only hope it is. But uh, it, it, the Tea Party ain't going away. I don't think it's going away for some time. I mean, they're going to have to recognize, if they want to play the game, play successfully, they're going to have to recognize that it does take some negotiation sometime to get anything done. I'm not sure they can get there. I'm not sure that most Tea Party people can get there. All right. Alan Moore, 30 seconds. The Tea Party did not have a good day last Tuesday. Are they dead and gone? No. But they lost in Virginia and in Alabama two high-visibility races. And all the money on the outside who has been distressed at what's happened in the Republican Party because of the Tea Party was watching and learning and figuring out what to do with what they learned from last Tuesday going forward. The Carl Tubin, real quick. The Attorney General's race in, uh, <clears throat> in Virginia, very tight, very close, but there are more ballots to be counted, and I think the Democrats are going to win. All right. He's ahead right now by 200 and some votes. Well, we're going to keep an eye on that one. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk Obamacare and the continuing just mud flow, mudslide of, of appreciation for that bill. going to be amazing. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. 
Shelly's back room. The place to be, as Bob likes to say it, it's also a place for private parties. Washingtonian. Uh, this is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, we're going to turn the tide right now and talk about the ever-eroding support for what is the Affordable Care Act, affectionately known as Obamacare. Uh, bad week for the administration yet again on Obamacare. Uh, let me put it into perspective for you. Last week, we had more listeners in Delaware on this show than Obamacare had registrants for health care. They had a total of six. We beat them handedly with triple digits. Thank God. But it still is a surprising number of people who are just not embracing this. It cost, uh, it, it almost cost uh, Terry McCall of his win in Virginia. It's been an anchor on various other Democrats rolling around town. Uh, but, and, and, and it seems to me that Secretary Sebelius uh, can't get out of her own way when talking to the Senate, when talking to the House. This is a messaging disaster. Congressman Al, is there any fix to this? Is there any way that this administration can take their legacy piece of legislation and turn it into something less than a big pile of poop? Not overnight. <clears throat> I think it is possible over time as they repair the, uh, the problems, they get the computers to work and all of that, that this will be last year's news and uh, it will move along. Uh, but uh, as of right now, it is an unmitigated disaster and, uh, and it's not going to help the Democrats for quite some time. Alan Moore. You know, some people are accusing Republicans of trying to scuttle it and hoping it fails. Let me say that's not me. I hope it succeeds. I don't see how it can succeed given the way it is constructed, and not because of the website. I mean, I've referred before to this promise of a, of a BMW system, or at least a Prius, and it looks like a Yugo. The website is the starter motor and that hasn't been working. Once that gets working later this month or early next month, then we'll start to check the tires and the transmission. And I don't think that the tires and particularly the transmission, I don't think the construct of this can work. I really do think that, it, that it's a Yugo. I would love for this Yugo to somehow miraculously work. There's no evidence that's gonna happen. 
we're not getting the people to sign up who we're going to need to sign up. And it, the jury's still out. It's going to take a while. It doesn't bother me that there aren't that many people yet. Um, because the, the, the website can't even tell you if you get a tax credit yet. So you're not going to sign up for something you don't know how much it's going to cost. Right. But in a couple of months, we'll know that. I don't see any evidence, though, that the young invincibles who need to be in the system to help make the, the financing work are going to come in. And that's a huge problem. And by the way, if you want to join the conversation, you can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713. Again, that number is 877-662-3713. Carl Tubin, your thoughts? <clears throat> a couple of things. Number one, uh, the, the same when Part D went into effect, the same problems happened. Not the same problems, but the, the rollout was very messy. And some of the same computer problems happened at that time as happened here. Mistake that the Obama people made is they didn't go back and look at what happened to, to Part D and what happened to other rollouts. Number two or number three is that in Massachusetts they had same they had similar problems. They were fixed. They had a very low first month, and then it started to pick up as as this thing picked up. Hopefully by the end of November the system would be fixed. People will start to, to come in, and the young people in Massachusetts didn't come in until very late in the ballgame, but they came in. But, Bob Hines, when, when we look at uh, the Affordable Care Act as it stands right now, I mean, a lot of people are looking at what is really going to define Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, as it's legally known as, as a success. Uh, David, our friend David Nather over at our friends at Politico has a great, great story in today's online edition, uh, and he and he talks about the idea of, you know, there's got to be a point where the Democrats will embrace it as successful. The Democratic following will embrace it as successful, but to find that point is very, very elusive. Is is there a point that you foresee from a Republican standpoint where? It, we would be worried, well, maybe it was successful. Well, clearly the website will get fixed. That's a technical question that good people from uh, the tech world uh, who I'm sure have been brought in now apparently uh, to fix it will make it work. So I would assume that by the end of the year it'll be working or very early in the new year. But Alan puts... Alan mentions the thing that I think is the Achilles feel foot of ankle for this thing. The problem is very clear that young people have got to sign up in very large numbers, pretty near three million of them, in order to finance the costs of Obamacare across the board. I don't think that's likely to happen. Now, I don't know, you know how close we will get, let's say, um, by that time we get to the end of March, which I believe is a deadline. Uh, I don't know how, if, we, if they'll have one million or a million and a half, but right now I, I bet that they may not even have a half a million young people signed up by then, and that will be a very serious problem. And there is no solution for that unless you start raising money, you know, start raising everybody else's fees. But you've got people, Congressman, now you've got people like Mark Pryor from Arkansas as well as Mary Landrew from Louisiana that are trying to, that are, are trying to put a spin on this that say, you know what, 
getting the website 100% functional is the major step in making Obamacare successful. Do you agree with that as a Democrat? Well, that would sure help, wouldn't it? it uh, I, I'm asking you. You're the pundit. That would, that would sure help. I think the problem here and what made me nervous from the beginning was the fact that it was, it was not going through the committee structure. It was not getting a chance to be adjusted and fixed and so forth. <clears throat> and, and when you start rushing complex legislation through, you're going to end up with something with all kinds of things that will have to be corrected. And I think there will be all kinds of things that will have to be corrected in this over time. Uh, it, it, it would seem to me that the lesson that should be drawn from this is we should start sending legislation back to subcommittees and committees and work its way forward and stop having it come out of the White House or the Speaker's office or somewhere else as though they had, had full-blown got it perfect the first time. Anybody who's been around this town knows nothing is perfect the first time. Carl Tubin? Well, they already have uh, they already have <coughs> legislation put in in the Senate, and I believe also in the House, to <clears throat> go back and fix the problem of those people who lost their, their insurance. Yes. To have that reinstated and, and put back. That's in Senator Mary Landrieu out of Louisiana sponsored it in the Senate. Correct. Merkley uh, also and other people. Uh, Alan Moore. And on that particular subject, just today. <coughs> The explainer-in-chief, uh, former President Bill Clinton, <coughs> said publicly uh, in an interview that he thought that uh, this is something that the administration had to change its position on and allow people to, to get what they were promised, that is, keep your, your, your current insurance, um, complicating the life of the folks in the White House uh, because they have simply said, we're looking for a way to fix this. Believe me, folks, that doesn't begin to fix the bigger problem. That, if, if I might bore you, make you guys crazy with my with my Yugo metaphor. If the, no, because if, that can hasn't been kicked down the road if, enough times. If, if, <laughs> if the website is the starter motor that's going to get fixed, I would say that the broken promise about keeping your insurance or the tougher one of keeping your doctors and your current hospital all of which uh, are, are subject to change by insurance companies, that's more the tires. Are the tires going to work? Well, you can let them keep their, their insurance, but most people, you, what you really want is people not to do that. You want to persuade them that that's not a good idea. Those are, are both not fundamental to the structure. The underlying structure is this very rich group of benefits, this reliance, this, this dependence on getting the right mix of people to come into the system so it's affordable. And if you don't, what the insurers will be doing a year from now, because they weren't getting what they thought they were going to get, is major premium increases so that they can continue in business. Congressman Al. Tell, tell, tell you what, Alan, I, I would agree with everything you said if you will get rid of that terrible you go analysis. <laughs> Maybe we'll move to a Chevy Nova, which in Spanish is Nova. Oh, it great. doesn't go. It doesn't go. I, great. I think those are things that the administration, things you listed, are things the administration's got to fix. No, no question. But let's look at this on a grand scale. I mean, nobody is, so far, nobody's been able to prove that the actual concept 
of Obamacare, Bob Hines, is in fact effective. I mean, they're, they're getting prices. They haven't been given the real cost to them yet because they can't figure out the tax credits. You're looking at a situation where they're still trying to fix up some of the version 1.0 bugs there. But is this a fact of there's a problem in the actual implementation of, or the actual thing that we know is the Affordable Care Act? Or is this just the worst messaging problem since New Coke? It ain't messaging. It's substance. Where? Well, look at it this way. Well, I'm not an expert on healthcare, so I can't get into detail, but look at it this way. There are countries all over the world, democratic countries, you know, liberal countries, and they have developed healthcare programs that are fundamentally run by the government. Now, whether we want to do that or not, that's where we're going, and that's what the president tried to do. Now, the difference is, it seems to me, that, as Al said, this, this bill came out of the White House, was massaged by the Speaker's office that, in that time. That was a Mrs., uh, Mrs. Pelosi. Mrs. Pelosi. And rammed through the House and Senate uh, in the first couple of years of the administration. This was the big thing. We didn't care about the economy so much. We really wanted to do health care. So we did health care. But they basically pushed the Republicans aside. Even if they had a good idea, they weren't going to listen to it. Now, that is a problem. But I'm, Bob, not, I'm not suggesting. Let's jump in here real quick. I mean, the Obama administration, from the get-go, has said that, look, what this is, okay, on a simple 50,000-foot level, is a safety net that closes all these monstrous gaps and is protection for those who do not have subsidized, employer-based health care programs and also can't provide suitable financial stability for their individual programs. That's, I mean, that, that's basically what this is, if you look at it in its most com lowest common denominator. Is that not accurate? Whether it's accurate or not isn't nearly as important as how they've done it, and they have, they have not done a good job of thinking through everything. They moved it quickly, and they haven't done a good job of, of, in effect, understanding how complex this situation is and how difficult it is, and they've just moved it much more quickly. I, can't, I, don't, I don't know the history of, of the English plan or the French plan or anybody else's plan, German plan, what have you, but I suspect none of them were created in the space of 18 months, and then boom. And I don't think that, I think that is the problem. It was just something that was not done carefully enough. As, 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 as I said earlier, I, I agree with that, uh, that, that it needed to be handled in a more measured way in order to be able to find these problems as they crop up and fix them before the legislation is passed. I agree with that. Uh, but, but and, and then a little bit, and at the end of the, I'm going to say it now, I, I just want to hope to be, wait until the end of this particular unit to say, we also are talking about revising entitlements. We are also talking about tax reform. We are talking about other big, complex, complicated, controversial issues. 
And if we try to tackle those without going through the committee process, we will have the same problems there. Now, the Ways and Means Committee in the House already has been working on some tax reform stuff, thank goodness. As has the Senate Finance Committee. Right. Yeah. So, so, so there we may we may escape this, you know, things being spawned from the brain of, uh, of, of, of the White House or the, or the Speaker's office or something like that. But uh, it, will we remember this lesson at that time? Last point I want to make is where has been in all of this the Republican solution. I mean, we, everybody, everybody seems to agree when we're not fighting over a specific proposal that we need to do something about the health care system in the country. It's costing too much. We can't afford to continue this way. There are people that aren't covered, da-da-da-da-da-da. So most people are for something. Now, the Republicans don't like anything that the Democrats have said but I have yet to hear them suggest one single solitary uh, solution of their own. Alan, more than Carl Tubin. Well, just, you know, there, it, it's not that there is nothing. It's very hard to be heard out there. We, 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 we do know that back when Obamacare was, was emerging, um, there was a there was an initiative. Well, there were two initiatives. One was bipartisan in the Senate, four Republicans, four Democrats, working hard to try to come up with common ground. Came up with certain principles. It just didn't. It wasn't going to be enough for for the Democrats. And I get that. There was an initiative that had about 20 Republican co-sponsors. It was a tax credit proposal for everybody in the country to get a tax credit to buy insurance. Harry Reid, the way he structured the debate on the floor was no amendments, no anything. You don't get a vote on that, you don't get a vote on anything. It's all or nothing. So it's not as though there weren't, there, there weren't ideas then or ideas now. It's, it's not like there's a single idea that's just brilliant that everybody has rallied around, but it wasn't as though everybody was, was, was negative and nothing else. But the, you would think that, that if... if if, uh, whether it was Nancy Pelosi or the White House or whomever came up with a whole plan as flawed as it may or may not have came up with a plan you would think if you didn't like that plan you could do more than just criticize it you could present an alternative and the Republicans have not done that Carl Tubin well, and you're absolutely right <clears throat> there were some things that the Republicans liked before the plan was introduced, and then they said no. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know how else you, you play with that. Yeah. Also, today, <laughs> now, Alan Moore. now I, there was a, a few weeks ago, I heard someone talking about healthcare Republican, and he said, we want <clears throat> a patient-centered program. Now, what does that mean? Yeah. Finally, well, they come up with a phrase, Alan, patient-centered. Alan Moore. <clears throat> President Obama and the Democrats were in this this challenging position. The economy was was in tatters, um, and here were these big majorities in the House and the Senate. I've talked about the curse of 60 votes in the Senate, which didn't last very long. Um, and then and then uh, 
the big majority in the House and and the president, you know, this this bipartisan effort that was underway wasn't moving along fast enough, and the Democrats were saying, "We got to use our votes. We got to get this hat. We'll never get sick. We'll never have 60 again. So let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go." And they went. What they didn't do was attack the underlying problem of medical care in the United States, which reimburses on the basis of volume of services, not quality of outcomes. And until you attack that, all we did was we're going to bring a bunch more people into our messed up, very expensive, inefficient system that doesn't get that greater results. That's very hard, complicated stuff, but that's where this, this group of eight was was working and, and, and trying. There are some aspects of Obamacare that bring that together. McCarl says there were there are things in there that Republicans like. Yeah, so maybe Republicans say we'll buy off on 10% of this, but that doesn't mean they're going to buy off on the 90% that they consider to be fundamentally wrong and misplaced. That isn't what Carl was saying. Yeah. Well, no, no, he said there were ideas wait, that Republicans wait, like. wait a minute. Let, let, Carl, let Carl respond. Let Carl respond. So there were ideas that the Republicans had, had, had wanted to have in the health care program, but when, when the Obamacare program was introduced, they walked away. They said, you mean when no. the name was introduced, did they have these no. ideas? Wait, 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 they said, they said no before. Let me, let me jump in. You know, the one thing I noticed is we, we, we've been talking about, you know, how the Republicans had ideas. The Republicans very, very well may have had ideas. The problem is they couldn't get hurt. They were not going to get hurt because of the way that this was ramshot through Congress. Had this gone through committee, this would have gotten heard. These ideas would have been brought out. And I think you would have seen a little bit more, especially for moderate Republicans, a little bit more embracement of the concept of the Affordable Care Act. Well, but nobody can, no Republican can get on board because nobody touched it. Well, the, 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 big problem, the big problem was that Obama knew that if he was going to get health care through, he had to get through in the first session of the Congress. And he was embarrassed because all these other countries had health care. Israel, 60 years ago when they were formed, had national health care. Of course, and we did, we, we can uh, use, they, they've used the Canadian model. They've used the National Health Service model in the UK. Everybody's talked about this. The reality is you're trying to – everybody in this country – at least as far as the Affordable Care Act, they are literally trying to put a circle peg into a square hole. And that doesn't work. Well, we, had, we had a system that 70% of America was covered and more or less happy. It's a screwed up system because people aren't aware of how much stuff costs. And we do reimburse on the basis of services delivered. But we didn't have this this screaming majority of people who were frustrated and complaining, we did have this large slice of America that, that, that wasn't served. What were we going to do about that, and how are we going to approach it? Let me ask you, I mean, as a Republican, I know myself as a Republican, as, as a moderate Republican, would I like to see health care for that 30%? Absolutely I do. I want Affordable Care Act. It is a principle that the Republicans have utilized for decades. But... This is not the solution. There are Republicans that want to embrace a, a total health care safety net. But they can't be heard. And that's because we have a Democratic speaker 
we have a Democratic majority in the House and we won't let you guys talk? Is this what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Well, he's saying it, I'm saying that back he's then. Saying I'm that saying that back then. what happened when Obamacare right. was passed. Right, right. Absolutely. Not right yeah. now. But <clears throat> it's a done deal now. It's law. The Supreme Court has said it's law. You're I'm done. I'm still waiting for a Republican plan. Well, if, well, I'll they, tell you they, what, they give they us want, a shot. They, 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 want, they want to cut the funding on it. They want to kill the program. They want to do, it, do all of that. And they don't have a plan that they're going to substitute. Well, we're going we're to let that. Obviously, we're not done talking about this by any stretch of the imagination. But we're going to go to break. When we come back, we've got special guest, D.C. City Council member at large, David Grasso, will be joining us here live in studio at Backroom Politics, broadcasting live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor down here at Shelley's back room 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital Washington DC come on down have a drink and make some new friends or heck just come on down and listen to backroom politics on Tuesdays
try it one more once. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're going to do a little bit of Inside the Beltway Politics today. Joining us in studio is a special guest. He is the councilman at large for the Washington District of Columbia. He is Councilman David Grosso. Councilman Grosso, thank you for joining us here on Back Room Politics. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. And if you have any questions for the councilman or just want to talk about uh, politics inside the district, call us toll-free, 877-662-3713. Councilman, uh, first of all, you're still in your first term as councilman. Uh, is it everything that you expected? Are you getting a little bit of a culture shock as an at-large councilman here in D.C.? Well, I'm not only in my first term, but in my first year still. So it is a bit of a shock, although I have to say I worked in the council for uh, six years right after law school, so I have a bit of an understanding of what I was getting into, but it's a different body, you know, different politicians, different people engaged, and that makes a huge difference. Well, let's talk, let's talk about the district in general right now. Uh, latest numbers coming out are, are showing that on a, on, a, on a monthly basis, the district's getting 1,400 new residents uh, coming in and residing in, in D.C. Uh, what kind of a challenge does that pose for the district, particularly the fact that we've already maybe stretched ourselves to capacity right now? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, we're getting 1,400 new residents. That's net, too, right? So right. We have that counts people leaving and coming in. And really what we're doing is just trying to get back to where we were historically. Historically, we were over 800,000 uh, residents in the district, and this is uh, we're at 630, 635 occasionally. So uh, it's really just getting back to those numbers again. So I feel like we have plenty of space. Uh, it's just a matter of how well we use it. And if you've been up the 14th Street Corridor recently, yeah. you'll see just the tremendous amount of development going on along there. Well, one of the big flagships is obviously City Center. Uh, what, what kind yeah. of, I mean, what kind of, you know, future do you see for City Center, and what kind of a model does that pose for the rest of the district? Uh, that's an, an innovative, amazing project. You know, you have about 10 acres there that was the old Convention Center site. Um, that has going to have mixed development and it's going to have retail on the ground floor, it's going to have condos, it's going to have office buildings, there's a hotel slated to go in there. Uh, I think it changes the downtown tremendously and that's hard to imagine given all that's gone on around the Verizon Center to have this big of a project come in there with that kind of high-end retail. There's rumored that Apple stores coming in and others. It's really going to change the structure of downtown. The, the other well, the other two big areas right now, let's talk a little bit about the Southwest Waterfront. For those of you who aren't in the district, the Southwest Waterfront resides on the Potomac and into the Anacostia Rivers. It is the site of the Nationals Ballpark, as well as a lot of development and expansion. It took a little bit of a speed bump during the economic breakdown after 2008. Is the idea of City Council, this is back on track and we're going to see more investment in that part of town? I was just down there on Saturday uh, talking to some developers, and it is on track. We've got... Uh, basically, one-third of the development on the Navy Yard site that's happened, two-thirds kicking in with four city development just taking the lead there. We've got uh, possibly D.C. United Stadium being built right there on Buzzard Point, connecting 
down by Arena Stage to the Southwest Waterfront, which, like you said, was delayed, is now just charging forward. It's going to be a huge development with a whole new marina. Uh, it's going to really change the river. Let's talk about the Buzzers Point project for a second. A lot of controversy coming out about that. The big question is, how is it going to be funded? Who's going to pay for this, and can the district afford it? Well, you know, I was involved as a staff member with the baseball deal. I was very closely involved as the committee clerk for the Committee on Economic Development. And I can tell you that this deal is a lot better than that deal. And the reason I'm saying is, well, it's a lot cheaper. Uh, This is $150 million (laughs) compared to a billion dollars. You also don't have Major League Baseball uh, pulling all the strings on this. Remember, Major League Baseball is who we negotiated with, not the Nationals. It's a different whole dynamic. Here we're dealing with D.C. United. We're dealing with an owner who genuinely wants to be in the city and is willing to put up $150 million to build the stadium. That's a pretty big deal and a pretty big difference. Now, what is also beneficial here is that we get to move the Reef Center from up there at 14th and U, where it's a very valuable property, bring it across the river, put it in Ward 8 in Historic Anacostia, where we could use the daytime employees walking around, taking advantage of the retail down there, maybe even new retail, and then a new development up there at 14th and U. This is a really a win-win across the city. It really comes down to the valuation of the property. What is it worth? What is the swap worth? And can we take that money and put it right back into the project? Uh, let, let, let's talk a little bit about development real quick. Unless, Alan Moore, you had a question on the Budget Point project? No, it's a different question. Okay. But, you know, we, we, you've talked about development. Uh, you, we've talked about the residents coming in. And D.C. recently has taken some hits. Uh, regarding how friendly the district is for business. Uh, Living wage, what happened there? Why would that even be considered knowing that some of the people who have made large investments, i.e. Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, et cetera, and Costco, knowing the fact that they just could not get around that, it would make it cost prohibitive to invest. Well, you know, I'm just going to be straightforward with you here. You know, I voted for that bill, and, and, and the reason I did is because I really don't want Walmart in the city. I have a, a Home Depot. I'm glad to have it. Target and others, but I, the, the business practices of Walmart I don't think go well in our city, and I didn't have a problem with saying, hey, you're going to pay a living wage or what people deem as a living wage. We're in the middle of a different debate now, and I think it's important to recognize that the minimum wage debate and whether or not it applies across the board to everybody is something that we're now discussing after the mayor's veto was held up. Um, and I think that one we're, we're taking a very measured approach on. There's a lot of proposals. We've had good hearing. We're going to move forward, I think, in a more measured way. But we, but we, we just from talking to businesses around here, uh, Councilman, the Restaurants Association obviously has a lot of heartburn about this. This is going to put, this is going to raise retail prices in their establishments. It's going to cost an added cost. Uh, devalue to their ability to operate as a business. Right. How do you how do you get again entrepreneurial business owners to want to come in? I mean, we've got great restaurants here, but you we're possibly putting a crush on it. Now, you know, I think it's a balancing question. You know, I think you really have to balance out whether or not people can uh, can afford to continue to live in our city that are working the jobs that are hourly. Uh, and if you don't and if you don't make it possible for people to live here. Uh, who are working those jobs by paying them what I think would be a fair wage. Look, twelve fifty an hour, which we're not even talking about in the minimum wage, is only $26,000 a year. There aren't that many people that can afford to pay that in the District of Columbia and even in the rents that we have now. But we, so. also, but we also see in a town like D.C., not unlike other major urban metropolitan areas, L.A., Manhattan, uh, Chicago, where, you know, 
people in the restaurant industry, particularly wait staff or bartenders, can make fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars, which is uh, somewhat of a livable wage in yeah. DC. Well, in fact, I've worked in the restaurant business for uh, five years, right at, right after high school. I don't know if you guys know Colonel Brooks Tavern over in Northeast, which was there for forty years. Um, that was a job I had in the late '80s. Uh, did every job in the restaurant, including waiting tables and bartending. The one job I didn't want to do for very long was management because management was a you know salary that was about 400 bucks a week. Whereas when I was waiting tables and bartending, I could make quite a bit more than that. So, uh, you know, I understand how it works, and I'm certainly sympathetic to these issues. Uh, I think that one of the things to remember about the minimum wage bills is a debate whether or not to increase the minimum tip wages, which right now, as you know, is 277. Correct. If you go 277 and the person shows that they didn't make 875, you got to make up the difference, which is a complicated thing. There's some people pushing that you make it 70% or whatever the minimum wage is. I think that was done in New York, maybe in California. I don't think that's the best way to go about doing it. And, and I haven't said that I'll support that, and I really don't want to support that. Very good. Uh, Let's talk about another major issue here in the district. The district has gotten a lot of attention for its medicinal marijuana program. Uh, are you supportive of the program, and would you support decriminalizing marijuana in the district? So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm supportive of medicinal marijuana use, and I'm supportive of decriminalizing it. And, in fact, I introduced a bill to tax and regulate marijuana uh, in September. Uh, which would do a similar thing as happened in the state of Washington and Colorado, where we would recognize that the war on drugs hasn't worked, uh, and that it's a real criminal justice issue that we need to stop wasting the time of the police and of the you know judicial system, uh, and start putting that into, into other efforts around. Do you the have city. any studies that show what kind of revenue the district could make off of tax decriminalized marijuana? We haven't. Ha we do not have a study on that. Uh, there is one now being performed based on my bill because what I've done is I've put a tax structure very similar to what we do for other tobacco products. So if it's medicinal purposes, it's six percent. If it's uh, for recreational, it's ten percent. Um, and so now you can do the analysis and see what the demand would be. Unfortunately, because it's illegal, it's hard to put a finger on the demand and what it would be. Um, but ultimately, I think we can find out what the value added there. And here's what I do. I take that money and I dump it right back into the Alcohol Beverage Regulatory Administration because they're going to be charged with regulating the industry. And that's going to be cultivation spots, it's going to be the sales spots, distribution spots. Uh, so they're going to have to pay for that. So I think that's important to note. Uh, when, when we look at the, the issue of decriminalizing marijuana in the district, uh, have you had conversations with the law enforcement agencies both you know, with Chief Lanier and her organization, as well as the federal agencies that would have a piece of that? Well, the federal agencies, I think, are pretty pretty important to note. You know, uh, they they're obviously will implement local laws to the extent that they can. The Obama administration came out with a memo out of Justice Department earlier this summer that had nine points that you had to follow or, or else they would come in and, you know, enforce their federal law in your local jurisdiction. Washington State follows those. We modeled our bill after Washington State, which also follows those nine points. Things like it can't be sold to minors under 21, DUI provisions, things of that nature. Um, so we feel fairly confident that the federal government will stay out of this. Now, as for Chief Lanier, you know, I appreciate the role that she plays, but ultimately it's the council and the mayor that makes the laws in this city. And so when we say that it's no longer going to be a crime, or we say that it's going to be taxed and regulated and not illegal, I think that's her duty to uphold that law and that it's really not my job to go out in the front and get her opinion on it. But, is it, but obviously this is going to be a situation where it's a NIMBY situation, not my backyard. 
when we, there was that fight when we talked about the cultivation in the uh, dispensary situation, mm-hmm. a lot of them were pushed outside into the heavily industrial areas out right. along New York Avenue, east of town. Uh, are you going to find that same fight if you were to decriminalize to allow marijuana to be distributed a la cigarettes? Right. Well, I think you would find a similar fight, but what we would have in place is a sophisticated regulatory infrastructure that allows us to regulate it properly, very similar to now, say you want to open a bar or a restaurant, you're going to have to be able to uh, go to Abra, go through the process. As you probably know, there's a protest process, there's ways for the community to be involved, but it's a process. Right now, the Department of Health is doing the medical marijuana dispensaries. They're not really that sophisticated in those types of things, and I think it made it way more complicated than it needed to be. Um, Let's talk a little bit about city infrastructure, if we can, for a second. Again, D.C. gets hammered every year as far as transportation infrastructure. One of the worst drivable cities in the country, D.C. is. Yeah. Uh, have you taken that on as, as a, as a uh, personal issue? Is this something that we're going to see improvements into city streets? Uh, and not, not just city streets, uh, the water infrastructure, the ability to get public services out to the community? I think it's a, it's a vital issue and it's something that I've worked on. In fact, in the budget process, I started what's called the Safety First Initiative. And one of the big issues we have in D.C. is you have traffic control officers, right? They're out here, you know, monitoring traffic. Right. They're placed at random political spots. They are not placed at the most dangerous intersections for pedestrians and drivers and other entities. And you really need to have them placed in places that is uh, backed up by data. Right. So what I did in my, in my Safety First Initiative, one of the things I said was we're going to study the most dangerous intersections in the city, we're going to figure out where these officers belong, and we're going to place them there. I think that's an extremely as- you know, important aspect of how we're going to get people in and out of the city to their jobs and everything else. Is, is this a matter of possibly adding more budgetary money or discretionary spending to DDOT? Uh, I think DDOT definitely has to have that as one of the options. They had, not, but let me just tell you where we started. When we were doing their performance over outside here, and DDOT didn't even have pedestrian safety as one of their measures for their performance for the year. So now they have that in there. Absolutely, we need to look at that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, traffic cameras, though. You know, that's a hot topic that a lot of people want to talk about. You know, and I've looked into this. We, we spend, we collect a way too big a fine. And what happened was we connected the, the enforcement of these particular traffic cameras, the speed cameras, uh, with... Uh, balancing our budget when during the tough times, then that's disingenuous. In the end, people aren't going to tolerate that, and I don't blame people. I don't want to tolerate it. We have to decouple that. We have to have it for the reasons that we, we, we need to do it is because we want people to slow down for safety reasons. That's so you're saying that thing. the speed cameras originally as set were revenue generation, not Clearly. enforcement. Yeah, you heard it on every, every time you heard them talk about it. They couldn't reduce them. They couldn't make fewer. Why? because of the budget holes that they would create. This was about balancing the budget. And, and now we're not in a position where we have to do that anymore. So what well, you've got a surplus right now. Yeah, we constantly have a surplus. And it's been over for three or four years. There's been surpluses every quarter. Uh, so when we talk about that, <coughs> excuse me, when we talk about that, though, we also have to talk about the other public services that are out there. For example, uh, the fire budget is constantly in question. The ability to have proper equipment in in service to respond to some of these emergencies, is is your idea for a budget to include public safety as an increase in the budget? Well, you know, I think, again, it's something that we have to look at as we move forward. You know, I've certainly met with Chief Elby. I've met with the fire unions. I've met with the folks on the ground. And these folks 
have pointed out deficiencies in the budget, and I think we have to address that. Uh, I, and I'll be honest, I don't sit on the Judiciary Committee, Correct. so I wouldn't have an actual role in that. It doesn't mean I haven't met with them. I think right. it's important for me to meet with them, understand the issues, and certainly if there's a need increase, it, my understanding is the mayor has unveiled a certain number of new emergency vehicles, uh, which is important. He's got more coming online. They got to be a priority. If they're not a priority, we're not going to be able to do what we need to do to make sure people are safe. One of the last hardball questions we're going to throw is the issue of the elected attorney general. Uh, why is the city council reluctant to put this to the people? The people have voted on it. They've said this is what we want. Yet city council continues to block it. Why? I have no idea. I voted against that. Uh, you know, I, I voted in support of keeping it next year. I thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line is you, if you go out, and one, one of my priorities as a politician in this city is to try to get more people engaged in the political process, get more people to care about what's going on every day on the streets and what's going on in the Wilson building. And if you go out there and you do a big referendum and you get them to vote 73% for something like this, and then, and then you come back, or maybe it's even more, and you come back and you undo it, because just because we have the power to undo it, I find it irresponsible and wrong. And I, and I spoke against it on the dais, and I spoke and I voted against that provision that was proposed mostly by Councilmember Evans, and I think it was wrong. I think you should let it move forward. Uh, and in fact, I think qualified candidates would step up and it would give us more representation out there, which I think is important. Congressman Al, I'd like to ask you a question about what the city's authority is in, uh, in this instance. This block, this block here, has an entrance off of G Street, right? You know, and it comes in, and then there's an alley with no other exits. There's no east exit. There's no west exit. You, everything's got to come in and out through a little narrow mid-block thing. And it seems to me that when they built the building at the end of the end of the block here. They could have easily put, allowed an, an exit from the alley so you would be able to have a more circulation of traffic. Uh, I think over here we've got a building where, where there is, it's sitting empty. That could allow a direct input to the garage back there <coughs> so that you wouldn't have to come into that little, that, that, that little and, and, and immediately then have to turn into the garage. This is all in the weeds. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, this, the, the people in Iowa are loving this right now, Congress. This is killing me. They're killing me. We couldn't have done this off air? No. I wanted to get somebody to ask this question to for years. Okay. The question is, does the city have the authority to have done any of the things I suggest, or is that something that's really in the private sector and you can't control? We actually have the uh, alley, kind of the ins and outs of alleys come through the city council, and we can certainly control that when a development project comes before us. That's something that we do. I imagine that alley was stuck like that, and I've been out there, and it's a mess. I agree. I imagine it's, it, it was done like that before we had home rule in the District of Columbia, uh, and, you know, which was 1975. So, uh, so it's Congress's fault. It was Congress's fault at that point. But at this great point, segue. it's our fault. Great segue. That, that's a great that segue. Thank you. <laughs> Councilman Grasso, let's talk about home rule for a second, real quick. Uh, <laughs> or Alan Ward, did you want to talk? Well, Obviously, yeah, you don't well, care I, I about it. 
you know, the people getting access to this block. Okay. <laughs> DC, Iowa. He's picking on DC here. All right. So, uh, Alan Moore. The, the DC City Council has had some serious problems with some of its members in the last couple of years. People have had to resign in disgrace. Some of them have uh, have, have ended up with with jail time. We've got a mayor of DC who is elected under a huge cloud of known illegal behavior. We don't know what he knew, and he refuses to talk to prosecutors. So it, th there's, there's this, this cloud over the council in D.C. and the surrounding area, and even around the country some. It gets, it, 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 it's a bit of a laughingstock at times. Um, and I'm curious as to what that aura does to sitting members trying to do a good, honorable, decent job for the, for the people of D.C. Um, whether you put it aside and say, that's not me, I'm curious. Well, you know, I think it's a, it's a right on great question. The, the reality is I ran on a, you know, on a platform of ethics that I wanted to change the way things were done. Um, what it does is it... Uh, all I can do up there regularly is try to live to a higher standard. And I, and I think it goes to the smallest thing is showing up to the meeting on time to the biggest thing around not voting on contracts to come before us because I believe it's inappropriate for us to have that authority in the beginning. So what, what I'm trying to say is that we have to have higher standards across the board. Do I think that the people of the District of Columbia would vote for people that are more ethical or more ethically inclined? Yeah, they voted for me over Michael Brown. And Michael Brown, uh, who, as you know now, has been arrested for bribery and, uh, and is going to go to jail in January. The people of the District of Columbia made that choice. We put it before them as voters, and they did the right thing. Uh, they should be commended for that. Do we have a little ways to go? Absolutely. I think we do. Do you, do you, have a, do you, do you, do you see any conflict with b being ethical and above board and transparent with supporting a piece of legislation that picks out one particular company and penalizes it in such a way that it would keep it out of operation in, right. in the jurisdiction. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any qualms with uh, my decision and vote that I did on Walmart, and I don't see any ethical issue there at all. In fact, I think it was a purely political and business decision that I made that I didn't want Walmart's business practices in the District of Columbia. I went to college in Richmond, Indiana. When Walmart came in, the main street there was completely ruined in a matter of two years because of the way that they undercut prices and employment opportunities, and, and I just didn't want that here. Was I honest with Walmart? Yes. I met with Walmart three times about this. In fact, Walmart came to me in the end and they said, look, we just want one more hearing on this bill. Would you help us do that? And I said, yes. And I went to the chairman. I said, we need another hearing on this. I think that's the ethical way to act as a council member, not whether or not I'm going to fight for Walmart or make Walmart have a, a higher wage or higher salary. Yeah. Okay. Carl Tubin? Yeah. What, what, um, I have a personal interest in the uh, Reeves building. What? What what does the Reeves building do? It's a constituent outreach or, or the Franklin Reeves uh, up yeah. on the uh, 14th and U. There, uh, it's about 20% occupied with um, government work, and then there's also um, a couple of other local groups that are in there that they that they use the space for office space. Right. Uh, they would all be guaranteed 
um, a new space in the place that's rebuilt there um, and or in the community. So we would make sure the government workers would actually go to the new building in Ward 8, and that's kind of the idea. Okay, uh, well, real quickly, because we got a short amount of time here, we got to talk about home rule. Uh, the, the fact that Mayor Gray called the entire city government essential uh, does that not give you heartburn, the fact that we're beholden to uh, Congress as far as our ability to govern ourselves, yet they continue to take federal taxes? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I think a lot of people don't understand very well is that, you know, we raise taxes in the District of Columbia locally over $6 billion a year. The federal government has final say on whether or not we can spend that money every year. So what, what basically, when the shutdown happened, when the incompetency on the Hill happened, we were able to go to them and say, you know, uh, my recommendation to the mayor and to the chairman of the council was don't even answer them, just spend our money. It's in the banks here, it's run by our people, by our employees, that we should just do it on our own. They went one step less than that, in my opinion, and did declared everyone essential, which had the same in effect. But are, are, you, are you at a point right now where you support D.C. statehood or some sort of solution to get a voting member in the House of Representatives or in Congress as a whole. Absolutely, I think that we will we will not be we will not have full representation in the power that we deserve as 630,000 residents until we have two senators, and I say that very clearly, two senators. I, you know, a, a voting member in the House is important, but everyone knows the real power is in the Senate. Really, mm. Congressman Al, <laughs> Congressman Al's having a heart attack right now. Don't say that, guy. Don't say that. Um, you lost a vote. Yeah. Until we get rid of that, that 60 vote thing. I, 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 I grew up with the belief that the Republicans are merely the opposition. The enemy is the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because you have two senators. Well, because they, because of all kinds of things. Uh, but, but would not one in the House be better than none in Congress. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, the woman we have now who I worked for for a number of years, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, as a non-voting delegate, is a pretty powerful member of the House who's done a lot of amazing things. So we got to remember that. Ab absolutely. She, she, she has done amazing. more with, without a vote than a lot of people with votes. Bob Hines. Hines. Yeah, two senators. Now, Bob Hines. What your view is two senators well, what about Puerto Rico? What about Guam? We, we have a number of places where there are American citizens, and if I agree, I mean, and, and the Constitution says senators have come come from states, congressmen in, come from states, and none of those territories, including the district, are states. Right. The so, big difference there, if if you don't mind, the big difference is that uh, they don't pay federal taxes. We do. Um, we also fight in all the wars, uh, which we have served in every war. The citizens have then died in every war. So I, I think there's a bit of a difference there. Although, do I think Puerto Rico or Guam or any other, you know, the, they, they have a, a right to uh, representation as well in Congress. And that I think there are steps to go through to get to that. We should all have the opportunity to do so. Uh, D.C. is a little closer, in my mind, to those steps. Um, and certainly are sitting here without those rights now, just like they are. And, uh, Councilman, one last question before we go to break. Uh, we know you've got other events you have to attend to. Um, let's talk about the Affordable Care Act for a second. D.C. operates its own hub, its own D.C. health care link. Uh, do you know how many people have uh, been enrolled here in D.C.? 
I think the number is close to 300 at this point in the local healthcare, you know, exchange. Uh, now, your previous life, you were government affairs for Blue Cross Blue Shield in a past life, free government. I was a vice president for public policy. I didn't lobby. I was the policy guy. Policy guy. It's, it's, a, Blue big, Cross it's a big difference. Big, it is. It is. We'll give you that. Uh, when, when you look at it from your background and you look at what's happening right now in D.C. alone, is the Affordable Care Act successful in D.C.? Not yet, no, and I, and I don't know if it ever will be. And I, and I have to say, you know, I believe that they made a big mistake in August of 2009 when it went from health care reform to health insurance reform. And it was a major shift in policy by the Obama administration. And I think you can't address the problems with the health care delivery system in this country if you don't address insurance, the providers, the hospitals, and all those, as, as well as uh, individuals. And that's just not what happened. They switched to be insurance, and I think that's just one leg of the stool. We're not going to solve the problem that do, way. Do you see any? Do you see any benefit, or do you see? Um, well, let me let me retract that. Let me go another one step further. What is it going to have to take to where the city council and Mayor Gray can say this has been successful as DC Healthcare Link? Uh, I think we'll have to see a demonstrated. Um, kind of impact around the federal subsidy side, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to is the exchange is there to give people subsidies to help pay for insurance. If but there's D.C. subsidies as well. Can the, can the government of D.C. afford that? Uh, well, actually, the, the federal subsidies, we already give a significant number of subsidies in D.C. through the Health Care Alliance and our share of the Medicaid. Um, there aren't new subsidies that will come out of the Affordable Care Act that are local. So we already do take care of that. It's the federal subsidies that I think it would be wonderful if we could get more subsidies for the pain of these insurance claims. Now, that goes to say, is, are there going to be enough providers? Are there going to be enough clinics and hospitals and other places for people to get care? I don't know. That's a really big wild card here. Uh, and I'd say it would be a real success if we could have enough people on the ground actually delivering care that's needed. Final question. Everybody apparently is uh, running for mayor here in D.C. Are you going to announce that you're going to be running for mayor? Absolutely not. I am uh, not running for anything. I've got a four-year term, and I really appreciate being in this position. For me, i got to get my feet wet still, and I'll, and I'll decide what I'm going to do in the future. Uh, who do you support for mayor right now? I have nobody that I support right now for mayor. I'm hoping that we can get somebody to come in and actually run a decent campaign. Will Vince Gray run for mayor? I think he might. <laughs> is, is indictment the key? Always. <laughs> Bob Hines, last question. Not a question, but it is, it is such a pleasure to listen to such a, an open and straightforward person. When I watch some of the meetings of the city council from time to time, I find that it's just, it's just a terrible place. <laughs> you know, there are you know, the number of people who have been indicted and going to jail right. and the rest of it, we got some, you got, you got a former mayor on the board right now who is just a criminal. <laughs> I mean, you are a great cleansing zone. Thank you. Appreciate that. Wow. Everything is wonderful. Thank it was you. his hope for D.C. Well, yeah. anyway, uh, listen, we've got to go to break. Uh want to thank Councilman David Grosso, at-large member of D.C. City Council, for joining us and for tolerating the hardball and some of the softball questions. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk international affairs. We've got our international expert, Dr. Ralph Winnie. We're going to talk about the nuclear disaster. We're not going to talk about the alley. We're not talking about the alley. This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, Seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, sorry for that five seconds of dead air there. Don't know what happened there, but want to give a special thanks out to Councilman uh, David Grosso. That's sitting. what you were doing while right. we were having dead air. Yeah, I was thinking the councilman. It's what yeah, all the moderators right. do. Exactly. Anyway, we're going to change uh, real quick. We're going to change uh, pace real quick. Joining us now is our international expert, Dr. Ralph Winnie. Ralph, thanks for joining us. Uh, hey, Glad to be here. Glad the, to be um, back. Uh, the, the big international talk right now is the Iran uh, nuclear deal that kind of popped up on everybody. Right. Uh, why did it break down? Well, I think certainly the French uh, and the U.S. are very concerned about 
uh, Iran's uh, intentions. Uh, certainly the sanctions are working, but they want to ensure that any kind of measured reform um, will lead to, to uh, Iran stopping the enrichment of their nuclear facilities. And that's, that's the problem. You have a facility called Iraq, not to be confused with the country of Iraq, but a, a deep water facility called Iraq that is on the verge of um, generating plutonium within the next year, and that's got the Israelis concerned. When, 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 when we look at the, the official statement coming out of Tehran, right. where they said, look, this is strictly for peaceful purposes, right. you know, we, we're, you know, they, I mean, they've mentioned everything from, you know, preventing global warming sure. to affordable energy to people right. in the outlying areas of Iran. It's a good argument, but it just seems that the international community as a whole, including some allies of Iran, yeah. don't buy it. Well, that's certainly the French foreign minister has called any kind of deal that allows the enrichment at the Iraq facility a, a sucker deal. What they're going to have to do is, is force Iran to accept um, IAEA inspectors that can show up unannounced and be able to have, have unfettered access to the facilities. If the Iranians do not agree with that kind of proposal, it's going to be very hard to move forward. At the same time, the U.S. and, and Europe, they're going to have to balance Iran's desire to have respect in the international community. Um, and they believe that certainly uh, nu having nuclear facilities is a way to achieve this, quote, respect that they think they deserve. But did it surprise you that John Kerry, the Secretary of State, would go to Geneva, recall himself back in for talks with the Iranians? Well, I, I certainly think he feels there's an opportunity here, but the key is to keep, keep, uh, keep the, the heat on around and to ensure that um, if they do not comply um, with an agreement, that there will be increased sanctions uh, followed by multilateral uh, involvement uh, in the country. So that's, that's the key, is to really show the Iranians that the, that the world community means business and to keep them from enriching uh, plutonium, but at the same time allowing them the opportunity to have respect in the international community. Alan Moore, you know, John Kerry is the highest ranking official that we've actively had engaging with the Iranians so far to date. Uh, when we look at that, what kind of a message is Foggy Bottom and the White House trying to send to the international community by sending John Kerry back to talks? Well, it, it, it's a it's a statement of our seriousness, uh, and and it's it, there's a there's an element of respect here that when the Iranians say we're serious now about talking, we go and talk. I do find it both interesting and troubling, and I'd love Al's comment on that. This that one. Israel is so concerned, and it's like it's as though they are afraid that we're going to get taken on the one hand, and at the same time, it's the French who seem to have the stronger line. Those two things are kind of strange. What what what's that all about? And what are we? What how 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 fearful should the, uh, the Israel be? Well, it's interesting that you brought that up, Alan. And one of my conversations with the former Greek ambassador to Iran. He said, well, one of the little-known things is that the French foreign minister is, actually, is Jewish, and he's deeply concerned that, of Iran's intentions to go after Israel. And certainly Netanyahu is deeply concerned about what's going on with the Iraq facility, because once that um, becomes operational within the next year, it limits the ability of Israel to be able to delay uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program. Uh, because of the enormous consequences that would happen if you attacked, 
fact, a viable nuclear facility at that point. So the key is to ensure that we have the weapons inspectors in Iran that can prevent a, a facility like from Iraq from being um, implemented. At the same time, certainly we want Iran and other countries to engage in, in the ab ability to, to have um, a, a peaceful nuclear program, but Iran has not demonstrated that they, they um, are a country that we want to have nuclear weapons. So it's a very difficult position that Co we're in right now. Carl Tubin. Also were very fearful. The Saudis also are very fearful of this. What's that all about? Well, uh, the, the Saudis are concerned that uh, the, the Iranians um, view their regime as uh, a, a regime that sides with the West, that is not a true supporter of Islamic teaching, culture, and thought. Um, they, the Saudis are, are, def are definitely afraid of what um, what kind of ideology the Iranians can in encourage within the whole Saudi culture because there are many people in Saudi Arabia that um, might fall under the influence of a radical Islamic fundamentalist uh, agenda and certainly the Saudi government is very concerned about Iran the ability of the Iranian government to foment that kind of ideology. Uh, Ralph, there's when, when the French are taking such a hard line on this, yes. and they tend to be more of the appeasing type, sure. is that something that the folks at Foggy Bottom and the State Department really need to take a look at and say, wait we might be acquiescing too much here? Certainly. I think the, the French, and as I said before, the French foreign minister is deeply concerned about this Iraq facility, that it's incompatible to have a country engaging in a peaceful um, nuclear um, proliferation um, when you have this deep water facility. And the key again is to ensure that you have weapons inspectors that are allowed to show up unannounced that can monitor effectively Iran's nuclear program. And that's the hardest part. Bob Hines. Rob, was it a surprise that the French were so uh, vigorous in this area? I don't think so because the, the French have a close relationship with the Israelis given the fact that the French foreign minister is Jewish. You've had Nicolas Sarkozy, his Jewish, his, his right-hand man, Jean-David Levitt, was Jewish. And they respect and understand Israel's place in the Middle East. They're very concerned about the possibility of Israel being threatened if Iran is able to develop nuclear weapons capability. Bob Hines. Well, then I would ask, why didn't our people understand that to begin with? Because it, I, looks, it sounds like they got surprised. Well, I think Obama, when he first came into office, he wanted to move away from the Bush model, and he wanted to extend a hand in friendship uh, to Iran and to other countries. And he truly believed that the Iranians would come back and be willing to, to engage with him. Uh, certainly that has not happened until very recently. And the reason is because the sanctions are working very effectively. It's certainly impacting the middle class, the young people in Iran. And now we have a strong opportunity, but how the U.S., France, and the rest of Europe plays their cards is going to be very important. The Iranians have got to believe that there are going to be consequences if they do not um, com comply with a legitimate uh, proposal. Carl Tubin. Yeah, I just want to bring up one point. I saw a, uh, uh, <clears throat> I saw a uh, documentary over the weekend, JFK portrayed, and it turns out that Obama took some of his uh, philosophy about reaching out to all these people from JFK. 
evidently when JFK was assassinated, he had been talking to the Vietnamese, he had been talking to Fidel Castro and some other uh, foreign leaders that weren't friends of ours who he thought possibly could come to the table and, and, and have peace in the world. And, and I, think, I think this whole outreach with Obama to Iran and Obama to other leaders, he campaigned on that and said it out loud and got criticized for it. JFK didn't campaign on it, but behind the scenes he did the same thing. Well, uh, certainly engagement is very important, and I think the, the, the key is to continue the discussions with the Iranians. But you have to have a, a plan of action. Uh, so that these discussions just don't go just go nowhere. And I think if you, they put a plan of action in a place where they will allow the Iranians to have their degree of prestige and respect in the international community, but at the same time can effectively neutralize the hardliners in Iran so that the country is not able to enrich the, the plutonium at these facilities, I think you can get a solid deal. But it's going to have to be backed up by even more aggressive sanctions along with the multinational uh, support, which could effectively mean an innovation. Uh, Ralph, last question. It, it seems that we're putting all this focus on Iran where we've talked to, uh, or at least I've had engagements with other foreign policy experts, and even people like uh, Condoleezza Rice has said it, we're, we're focusing on the wrong spot. The place we need to be focused on is the more militant, more Islamicification, if you will, of Pakistan, which is already a nuclear power. Why are we so hell-bent on Iran and not focusing on trying to get Pakistan under control? Well, I think Iran, because of the recent outreach, there seems to be this, this impression that if we engage enough with them, if we start this dialogue, that we're going to come to an actual agreement. It's also, the time clock is ticking. Netanyahu is deeply concerned if they enrich plutonium at these facilities, it's going to prevent the ability of Israel and the U.S. to effectively uh, prevent Iran. Now, Real quick, Alan Moore? Yeah, it, it just one, one other factor. Iran doesn't have the bomb yet. Right. Pakistan does. Right. And, and if, we, if we need any reason to be worried about what it might be like of, with Iran with a bomb, we look at Pakistan. So anything we can do to protect Iran from getting it not only helps us down the road, but it also discourages the other countries that are would-be, wannabe uh, bomb, bomb owners uh, from realizing, no, you pay a big price if you try to make the bomb. Very good, very good. Uh, well, we also know that Pakistan, over the years, has given certain secrets away to other countries. Oh, yeah. Right. No, that's true. Um, okay. We should continue to engage with Pakistan. No As, we do. As we do. As we do. Right. Well, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, Dr. Ralph Winnie, appreciate you joining us here for this segment. Glad uh, to be here. Real quickly, i got to talk about one other international aspect uh, that hits kind of home. Um, the disaster in the Philippines that has happened over the weekend, one of the largest storms on record tore through the Philippines and just caused mass havoc and just total disruption of that country. Uh, obviously, our thoughts and prayers are with, are with the folks in the Philippines. I've got friends that are there right now. Uh, I encourage everybody who's listening that if you can, if you've got an extra dollar or two, go to go to the Red Cross website, donate to the relief. Uh, Philippines have been, you know, very closely tied to this country since 
its inception as an independent republic. And I think, you know, now's the time of real need for those folks. It was just announced, uh, CNN was just reporting that along with a carrier group, they're going to be sending other support ships. Uh, there's talk right now about sending the uh, U.S. Uh, Naval Hospital ship Mercy out of Baltimore and sending her over uh, to support uh, the relief efforts there. Obviously, the Marines and the Navy are there in force as we speak. Uh, so, anyways, keep an eye on that. Uh, now it's time for my favorite part of the show, Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the latest buzz, innuendo, and gossip coming in and outside the Beltway. Uh, Congressman Al Swift, tell me a story. I have one. You have a story. Is it modern day? Modern, yes. Good. Tell me a story, Congressman Al. It's actually futuristic because I think that in a few years, and I don't know if it's five or ten, but somewhere in that range, we will look back upon this time as the beginning of the end of the Tea Party. Uh, it's, it's not going to happen immediately. But the fact is, the Tea Party is simply too extreme to last. Uh, it's what ideas it has that are viable and good will no doubt be picked up by the Republican Party. Uh, we have seen uh, insurgents like this throughout our history be, being absorbed by one party or the other. Uh, there may even be some something the Democrats can pick up, I have no idea. But it just seems to me that while they are looking strong, I think they aren't. They're on their way out, but we have to be patient. Do you think they're up a dead end, Allie? <laughs> <laughs> don't answer that, Al. Council, don't answer that. <laughs> if, if, we, if we could get them... In this alley, we kill we them all. Can, we, we easy, easy, easy. Look what they're doing to Jimmy Kimmel for comments like that. Stop it. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Uh, over the weekend, I was uh, fortunate enough to be in uh, Newport News where the Gerald R. Ford, uh, the first of the new system of aircraft carriers, was christened. The new Ford class carrier. The new Ford class. And it was a marvelous experience. And the most wonderful thing about it was to see all the shipbuilders, the men and women who have built this amazing vessel. It's got all, it, 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 is, it, is, it is the same size as the Nimitz carrier, but it has so much new, creative, uh, imaginative uh, ability to do things that are just phenomenal. Wow. And it was uh, it was a great pleasure to be there as a trustee of the foundation, of the Ford Foundation. And uh, Gail and I had a wonderful time down there, uh, uh, spending time with our friends from the Ford administration. And it was just, it was so much of a pleasure to see all these these young people, men and women, the, the welders and the, uh, the, the, the people who put the thing together, and it is they are so proud of what they have done. So Rosie the Riveter is not dead. Not no, at all. Not at all. A wonderful right. thing. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. Let me see. In 17. Uh, nope, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 hold on, hold on. Is it, in, waiting, is it in this year? I've been waiting to tell this story for three weeks. All right. Carol Burnett 
was in town about three weeks ago now, maybe four. It's been so long since we've had a story. And uh, <clears throat> she was given the Mark Twain Award. Yes. And basically she said, you know, I've waited a long time for this award because there are, there are many people who are funnier than I am, except for those people here in Washington, D.C. That is a great quote. That is a great quote. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, Philippines. There's about 7,000 islands in the Philippines, and about 2,000 of them are inhabited, and hundreds of those were affected by this uh, this grotesque uh, hurricane-slash-cyclone. Um, there, there are literally tens of thousands of square miles that are affected, and you can only reach them by air or by water. Um, we don't know how many are dead. The numbers are... 10,000 more. The, we don't know how many are displaced, although the figure 800,000 uh, is out there. If they don't have water and they don't have food and they can't get water and food in a short period of time, the, the death toll will just skyrocket. And, and so it's terrific that, that the world is responding, but the, but the logistical challenges are huge. While that's going on, uh, with the world united and focused, Syria, which dwarfs the Philippines disaster so far in, in size in terms of deaths, now about 120,000, displaced people, 4 million plus, has only got, the, the, the UN request for aid has got 40% of what, of, of what we need. Uh, the president has got himself into a corner with red lines and focus on chemical weapons, Assad is killing his people with conventional weapons. Weapons. President Clinton always said, "I wish I could do Rwanda over again." And I think that Obama, that that, that Syria is increasingly becoming President Obama's Rwanda. Wow, very good. Uh, news flash, political news flash out of Florida. Governor Rick Scott continues to make enemies within his own party. Uh, several pieces of legislation have gone before the governor for his input. And Governor Rick Scott has said that he will take up none of them, including a key, uh, a key piece of legislation regarding E911 systems in the state of Florida. Uh, he has said that not only will he not take it up, but he will not sign the bill, which is going against the promise he made to the lead author and sponsor, Representative Scooby out of uh, out of Manatee County. What does this show? This shows that the governor of Florida is on his own reservation. The governor of Florida is self-serving and has absolutely no ability to really grasp reality and let alone try and reach across party lines, let alone reach into his own party, which he needs. This is a billionaire playboy governor who has nothing but self-serving before him. Let me make this clear. Governor Scott, if you are listening or any of your people are listening, you are up for re-election next year. You can buy the election, but you won't make any friends in the legislature doing what you're doing. Just as Bill Clinton told President Obama over the weekend, you have got to keep your word, sir. Well, I'm telling you right now, Governor Scott, you've got to keep your word. Endorse and embrace and sign in the E911 bill if it comes before your desk. 
on that note, again, folks, we urge you, go to American Red Cross. Go to redcross.org. Give your support to the Philippine uh, uh, relief efforts. Uh, we wish everybody there the best fortune and, uh, and hopefully can get the Philippines back on their feet. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Carl Tuvin, Alan Moore, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be here next week talking about the latest political inside and out, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob, you're pulling that microphone ever so closer to you. What are you going to do? I am going to say, boy, if this isn't the place to be, it doesn't exist. It's true. Thanks again to, con- Thanks again to Councilman Grosso for joining us. We'll be here next week. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye.